Chapter 10 of A Soldier's Letters to Charming Nelly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dale Latham. A Soldier's Letters to Charming Nelly by J.B. Polly. Chapter 10 In and Around Richmond. Falling Creek, Virginia, March 20, 1863. It was with deep regret and noticeable temporary increase of profanity that the Texas Brigade moved out of its winter quarters at Fredericksburg. Rudely fashioned and half-finished in many respects as they were, they offered comforts and conveniences that were not only restful, but made us feel just a little as though we were sort of at home. Having an idea that the order to abandon them and come down here to bivouac in the near vicinity of Richmond emanated more from the silly fears of the original secessionists who so much prefer legislating for the Confederacy to defending it from its enemies. We found a large measure of appositeness in the words that Shakespeare puts in the mouth of one of the characters in King Lear. Thou hast seen the farmer's dog bark at a beggar, and the creature run from the cur there. There thou mightest behold the great image of authority, a dog's obeyed in office. We left Fredericksburg on one of the coldest days in February, coming by railroad to Richmond and thence meandering from one side of the road to the other, out to this camp four miles from the city. I use the word meandering advisedly. You may be able to guess why, when informed that, since a learned justice of the peace decided that our military authorities had fractured the constitution of both the state of Virginia and the Confederacy when they prohibited the sale of ardent liquors by the drink, saloons have become plentiful in Richmond, and the man with the cash need not long remain thirsty. Let me forestall, however, the unkindly suspicion which may creep into your mind that I was one of those meanderers. By stating on my soldierly honor that I went astride of a horse, and that, given a loose rein, the sagacious animal swerved neither to the right nor the left, but carried me straight to camp. Whatever the alarm that brought us down here, it subsided the moment it was known in the city that two divisions, hoods and pickets, had come to defend the capital and the trembling lawgivers assembled there. The Union forces which had disturbed the serenity of these statesmen retired in haste, and much to our delight we have had but one tramp since arrival at our present quarters. That was out by Ashland. Some timid cavalrymen had come on an almost exhausted horse to Richmond with the report that the Yankees were moving in force toward that place and to meet them and drive them back ere they approached near enough the city to prevent our congressmen from continuing their weighty deliberations on the conscript act, which was to force every man of the South except themselves and their kind into the army. We pulled down the few tents we had, and loading them on the wagons, marched rapidly to the portable theater of hostilities. But it proved a false alarm, and... Halting in a veritable wilderness of pine, we sought a much-needed rest. Next morning we set out on the return march in a blinding snowstorm that held on all day. Its demoralizing effect, however, was first visible only when we reached the city. 
then in a manner the brigade disintegrated every man of it save the small minority of teetotalers making a flank movement and going in search of warming liquid refreshments so sudden surprising and inexplicable was the depletion in the ranks that when general robertson our present commander looked back through the darkening mist of falling snow and down the long straggling and attenuated line of shadowy moving figures he could only give expressions to his consternation by exclaiming where in hell is the texas brigade he was about to send details in search of the absconders but luckily general hood who was riding near enough to overhear all that was said and who although a west pointer is fairly well acquainted with the texas and arkansas temperament and taste thoughtfully interposed never mind general never mind he said you'll get them all back in the morning or at any rate in time to lead them into the next fight the fact that general hood and i were at night both the guests of mr john james of san antonio texas a warm and highly valued friend of my father must serve to avert any suspicion that i was one of the absconders mr james brought me letters from my home folks and a fairly good and much wished for but not really needed supply of cash he also secured permission from general hood for me to stay with him at the hotel during the few days he remained in richmond the boarding at a stylish hotel was an all experience to me and as mr james kindly paid all the bills i made the most of the picnic by indulging my appetite to its limit a hearty eater is usually an excellent listener a virginia officer who sat near me one day in the dining room related an anecdote that so amused me and so well illustrates the unwillingness of some people to confess themselves the victim of a practical joke that i must repeat it Colonel M., commanding a regiment in Pickett's old brigade, is an excessively dignified gentleman. But though a brave and capable officer, he is to the rank and file of his regiment what the representative of the Confederacy to the court of St. James. For all the good he has done us, or is likely to do us, might as well be to the English government, that is, persona non grata, his war horse is his wife's favorite buggy horse and was named by her Osawatomi. the colonel was one day informed that on the next he was expected to ride at the head of the regiment through the principal streets of richmond and as that was the home of himself and most of the men and he desired his command to appear at its best he notified the company officers of the intended movement in ample time for all needful preparations that very night some graceless reprobate shaved osawatomie's tail leaving not a hair on it at the hour when colonel m was informed of the shearing it was too late for him to secure another mount and he had perforce to ride the bobtailed steed the laughing and raillery of the riffraff of the street gammons and adult idlers he met with disdain not appearing to notice them his wife however had rights which ten years of matrimony had taught him it was not wise to deny the estimable lady 
stood among a crowd of distinguished people and no sooner discovered the disfigurement of the horse than at the top of her voice and in the shrillest of its tones she cried why robert my dear who in the world shaved oswatomie's tail off that way to have such a question asked at such time and place was horribly embarrassing to the doughty officer and for two seconds he remained silent then casting a sternly reproachful look at the partner of his joys and sorrows he replied it was done to my order madam it was done to my order in my haste to tell you the reasons for our change of base and what has transpired since we arrived here i have omitted to mention the great snowball battle in which practically the whole of longstreet's corps participated it occurred at fredericksburg the day after a very heavy fall of snow what company or regiment initiated the affair i do not know the first intimation given to me of its progress came in the shape of a snowball that judging from the way it hurt me must have been left out in the cold so long as to become solidified it was thrown by a long bandy-legged georgian of benning's brigade whose good marksmanship was doubtless due to the practice indulged down in the goober grabbling state of knocking chickens heads off with rocks to add insult to injury done to the back of my head by the first snowball the impudent fellow threw another one twice as hard which hit me in the same place do not imagine i was running though for i was not I was only taking longer and faster strides than usual. In self-defense, as soon as I regained my feet and saw he was preparing to continue the contest, I dived into the adjutant's tent and within its protecting walls administered a soothing rubbing to the fast-swelling bump on my occiput. The battle was a long and hard-contested one and lasted nearly all day. Field, staff, regimental and company officers as well as privates figured conspicuously in it and even a general or two took a hand although no serious wounds were inflicted black eyes bloody noses ragged ears and sadly disfigured physiognomies were abundant after hostility ceased the texas brigade as usual was in the thickest of the fray that is, all of it except myself and a few others, who, because of the inclemency of the weather, and after the first few volleys, deemed it imprudent to remain outside of a tent. Such, indeed, was the din and racket created, so loud and long-continued was the shouting and the yelling, that imagining our army preparing for an immediate advance, the officer in command of the Yankee cavalry doing picket duty in Stafford Heights ordered his men into the saddle. One of my comrades, whom for convenience I will call Jack, has great faith in Providence. Ask him when he's hungry and his haversack empty, where he expects to get his next meal, and he invariably answers, Providence will provide. He has aired that faith and said those words so often that he is becoming known to some of the boys as Old Providence. 
few days ago he was entirely out of meat and had been for the better part of two days, having devoured the three days' rations issued to him in one. The five dollars in Confederate money that yet lingered in his pocket, a sad and lonely remnant of the twenty-two in the same currency that was paid him the day after we got to camp in compensation for two months' service, could purchase nothing for him in a camp where there was nothing to sell, and going to Richmond was out of the question, for he had exhausted for a long while his right to a pass. While endeavoring to allay the cravings of his inner man by tightening his belt, he gave his mind to reflection, and judging from the alacrity with which he donned his cartridge box and shouldered his gun, and the speed at which he struck off down the railroad track, a more than usually brilliant idea had illuminated his mind. Half an hour later he returned to camp, a smile of triumph on his hitherto gloomy countenance, and half a side of bacon dangling from the bayonet end of his gun. But not a word did he utter till he had hung the meat on a limb, set the gun against a tree, and divested himself of the cartridge box. Then, turning to the envious comrades who in surprise had gathered near and silently watched his every movement, he said, Haven't I told you boys time and again that if you would only cultivate the proper kind of faith, providence would provide all that you needed. Indeed, I have, and as many times as you have laughed at and derided me and held me to scorn. But, gentlemen and fellow soldiers in the holy cause of the South, there's the proof that I knew whereof I spake. And with the air of a conqueror, he pointed to the bacon. If there is one among you who doubts in being a genuine article of fat, juicy, sugar-cured, and hickory-smoked bacon, he is at liberty to smell it and be forever convinced. Where did you get it, Jack? And by what peculiar modus operandi? Instantly asked Bill Calhoun. That is the burning question and that is most fiercely and voraciously agitating the moral and intellectual faculties of this present enthusiastic gathering of your friends and well-wishers. I got it out in the woods yonder, and just as easy as falling off a log, replied Jack, and as with deft strokes of a sharp knife he began to cut thick rashers from the middling. If a man wants providence to help him, he must put himself in the way of providence. That's what I did, and this meat is the result. Feeling hungrier and having less to eat than usual, I set off down the railroad with my gun, hoping that by some fortunate chance I might get a shot at a rabbit or a squirrel, or perhaps run across a terrapin. But the squirrels were all asleep, and the rabbits visiting distant neighbors, and the terrapins, known as Inventus. Feeling that luck had deserted me, I sat down at the foot of a tree, and, bless God, hadn't been there more than a minute when a darkie came along with a big meddling of bacon. Thinking it a special interposition of providence, in favor of a starving man, I proposed to buy a piece of the meat, and the darkie willingly sold me half of the middling for five dollars. 
Willingly, Jack? Willingly? Queried Calhoun, a suspicion of doubt apparent in his tone and look. Did I hear you use the word willingly, my boy? Of course you did, replied Jack, as he carefully laid a couple of slices of bacon, each a foot long, into the half of a canteen which served the purpose of a frying pan. But I'd have come nearer the mark, had I said gladly, for the poor devil was actually staggering under the weight of the whole middling, and was really glad to sell me half of it at so fair a price. All oh, me, all oh, me, sighed Calhoun, his eyes dreamily wandering. Oh, me, boys, when, after listening to our beloved and respected comrade in arms, and hearing him use the word willingly in connection with this sudden acquisition of a piece of bacon that can't weigh a pound less than forty pounds, ever to pause, and also and likewise hearing him insist he ought to have said gladly, I take a squint at the tablets of memory and see norrated on them in shining letters that cordon to this morning's paper the particular kin of internal refreshments our aforesaid comrade is a statin he gave five dollars for a whole shebang of is selling at sixty cents a pound and mighty little to sell at that my overweening and trusting faith in human nature sort of weakens and gets sour and i feel like saying with the poet can such things be and overcome us like a summer's cloud without our special wonder. Jack had continued too intent on a speedy appeasement of his ravenous appetite to listen to Calhoun's remarks. Conscious of this, and knowing I must have heard all he said, Calhoun came over to where I sat against a tree, about thirty feet distant from Jack, and in an aggrieved tone said, The only time a feller has a God-given right to tell darn no such a thing, Joe, is when he's just got to tell it, or go to the guardhouse. Then it's natural and proper, because it's self-defense. And you know the Bible says, All a man hath will he give for his life, or words to that effect but a feller hasn't got any business lying to his comrades. What sits most uneasily on my sensations of morality is Jack's story in his sort of reckless use of the words willingly and gladly, for there wasn't a bit of willingness and gladness in the poor nigger's bosom after he run afoul of our high-minded and distinguished fellow-soldier. Jack seen him first and knowing he had robbed some old citizen, got the drop on him with his gun and commanded him sternly and vociferously to surrender. Then Jack whacked the middlin' in two, gave him the five dollars, and choosing the biggest half, toted it into camp. That's the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me Moses and all the holy prophets and disciples. I decline to express any opinions on the subject, 
It was none of my business, I thought. Besides, I felt sure Jack would invite me to supper or breakfast. My faith in his hospitality was not misplaced, and I do not mind confessing that the bacon, which proved the main staple of the meal, tasted sweet enough to have been first stolen by the darkie and then confiscated by my host. All of the odd characters in the Texas Brigade are not members of the 4th Texas, by any means. The Ragged First has many on its muster roll, and among them a tall, powerfully built, and red-faced corporal whose name escapes me at this moment. The corporal was on the picket line one day down at Yorktown, and, being both hungry and ragged, decided to venture beyond the line in search of something he might eat or wear. He had not gone fifty yards to the front when he discovered the body of a well-dressed and splendidly equipped Yankee lying behind a little thicket of sassafras which concealed it from the view of anybody in the trenches. That he might more exhaustively and leisurely administer on a dead man's estate, the corporal carried the body and all of its attachments and belongings to the shelter of the breastworks. The inventory justified the rash venture of the self-appointed administrator, the corpse yielding a pair of extra-good shoes, a suit of first-class clothing, and a well-filled haversack, sixty dollars in gold, and, best of all, a canteen two-thirds full of excellent whiskey. Having swallowed a good four fingers of the whiskey, the corporal wiped his lips with the sleeve of his coat, put on a long, solemn face, and, looking down at the corpse, said in mournful accents, Poor fellow, poor fellow. Like the many of your tribe that have gone before, their departure from this veil of tears hastened by well-aimed Confederate bullets, you have gone to your eternal home in the lowest depths of that other world whose fires are never less than red-hot. But though I mourn, your untimely demise, it is not with a grief that is without consolation. That you were a gentleman and not a vagabond is evident. Your boots and your coat, your pants, and your liberal supply of filthy lucre. In short, your whole tout ensemble, stamping you as that beyond any controversy. But had I a shadow of a doubt of your being a gentleman, in every sense of the word, the quality of the liquor in your canteen would resolve it in your favor by an overwhelming majority. So here's to you, Yank. Living, though an enemy of my country and therefore deserving of death, you must have been a jolly good fellow. Dead. You'll soon return to the dust whence you sprang and that you may the sooner do the returning act. My comrades and I will lay you under the sod of an old Virginia just as soon as we have emptied your canteen. The corporal was good at his word and, assisted by his comrades, dug a grave in the sand and buried the body. Note 5 the Texas Brigade remained at Falling Creek until about the 1st of April. 
thence it went to petersburg and camped in that vicinity three or four days when taking the jerusalem road it passed through the town of the same name and crossing the blackwater river arrived at suffolk about the sixth day of april here it and the other forces along under the command of longstreet pitted themselves against gunboats big and little holding the federals closely within their lines until a large amount of quartermaster and commissary stores could be hauled out of the country south of the city at the time longstreet was notified that the battle was impending at chancellorville all his wagon trains were away on foraging expeditions and it was impossible to recall them in time to enable him to reach lee and take part in the battle of chancellorville the troops under his command however recrossed the Blackwater going north on the day or maybe the day after the battle was fought and won, passing through Petersburg and Richmond again, and in the vicinity of Orange Court House and near the Rapidan, rejoining the main army between the 10th and 20th days of May. End Chapter 10 Recording by Dale Latham